This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This country was built on a distinctly American work ethic. But today, work is in trouble. We've outsourced most of our manufacturing to other countries. And with that, we sent away good jobs and diminished our capability to make things. American Giant is a clothing company that's pushing back against this tide. They make a variety of high-quality clothing and activewear, like sweatshirts, jeans, dresses, jackets, and so much more. All made right here in the USA, from growing the cotton to adding the final touches. So when you buy American Giant, you create jobs for seamsters, cutters, and factory workers in towns and cities across the United States. And it's about more than an income. Jobs bring pride, purpose. They stitch people together. If all that sounds good to you, visit American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order when you use code STAPLE20 at checkout. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com with promo code STAPLE20. This autumn, as the nights draw in, beat the cold with Now TV. Curl up with the latest blockbusters, including Bohemian Rhapsody and Hotel Mumbai. Plus, with over 40 new movies added each month, from Aquaman to How to Train Your Dragon 3... Now TV's got you covered, wherever you feel like watching. Get cozy with the latest and best movies for just $11.99 a month. Search Now TV today. 18 plus month passes auto renews unless cancelled. Terms apply. Busy being black means cultivating a mindset that allows us to constantly embrace and celebrate cultures outside our own. Ryan Lange, an art and fashion curator and my guest today, was raised in Canada in a melting pot of cultures and realities that has left a lasting impression on how he sees and interacts with the world around him. His club night hangama is named so for the Hindu word for chaos and bedlam, and a word his mother used to describe the joy and revelry of big family gatherings. Indeed, it seems that so much of Ryan's work centers around a collision of cultures to foster a deeper cultural appreciation to help amplify our similarities. Ryan and I caught up at Creative House, a thoughtfully designed and independently run workspace in Hackney, where he is the cultural producer. We begin by discussing the moving and heartfelt piece he wrote for Gay Times in November of 2017, aptly titled Hungama. I'm Josh Rivers, and I'm busy being black with Ryan Lange. <laughs> So much of that piece brought to mind for me those moments when I was sitting watching my mom curl her hair and put her lipstick on. And, you know, do you think that we have a lot of these as as gay men mm-hmm. that, maybe that's a loaded question, but do we have a lot of these similar experiences, you think? Yeah, I definitely do. I mean, some of the people I've spent time with getting to know their childhood and their, their discourse, um, they've more often than not, they always reference when they were a kid and how the magic and fascination with who they are and what they do um, was incepted during those kind of moments mm-hmm. where they were just observing. And um, they were observing beauty or observing creation or observing celebration. And then those kind of 
feelings, I guess, whether or not they they be endorphins or just excitement, like curiosity. Yeah, it just kind of latched onto them and made them build a stronger part, a part of their identity. Observation is perhaps something we don't do enough of now. Yeah, I don't think we do because we are desensitized by feeds and we are um, constantly looking at things and not actually feeling them. We're just, we're just like pushing them through our synapses and I don't think we're actually, like there is no reaction. And so well, that's why when people have moments of like what devastation or um, obstacles or even heartbreak, they, they feel it really hard because they almost, they, they don't take the time to feel everything around them. Usually, that's why I feel at least. I suppose there's also a childlike critical analysis that happens through observation as well. Mm-hmm. So it's not just looking at something, it's downloading and analyzing it. It sounds like a lot to put on a child, but if we think about how formative those experiences have been. Yeah. Well, I mean, it does sound like a lot to put on a kid, but the way that I see it is that if you children are the only creatures that can think without any sort of barricades or mm-hmm. red flags or, or um, barriers. So they think 100% freely. It's their growing up process and their experiences and their education will start to condition the way that they think. Mm. So like, if we could only get inside a child's mind when they were experiencing these things, we would understand exactly what a, a liberated form of thought would be. I mean, for us, like, I mean, myself growing up through oppression or just cultural like itch- situations or even just the fact of moving from Canada to London and having to uh, re... not habilitate, but like just like environmentally get used to the changes of being in a different country. Yeah, like these, yeah, there we go. Um, these kind of things just... You don't realise how much they affect you mm. in the long run. And so like things that I've experienced <clears throat> living in London eight years ago are still affecting me to this day, but I don't realise that until you have that sort of moment of... Um, I guess that moment where you can feel that exact same emotion. What was your first impression of London? It was terrifying. I felt I found London was very dark and grimy. I felt like everyone had an alcohol like problem because it's true. yeah, Canada <laughs> the, Canada does not um, accommodate drinking. Really, that, like every all the bars are closed by like nine o'clock at night. Like you can't buy alcohol on the streets. Like. Um, just to see pubs just like oversubscribed with people on a Monday or Tuesday night and seeing people celebrate their hangovers at work like it was they, 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 these were just cultural differences and so it took a while to get used to that um, and also in my first two days of being in London I got mugged by five people and not even mugged I was brutally beaten up just because I was wearing red trousers what? yeah I was walking I, had, I got a job at a pizza place um, I needed an income right away and I had a trial shift, which was difficult because I'd never worked in the... I was working in Brick Lane. And I finished my trial shift of, like, three hours. They, they were like, yeah, you can work here. Start tomorrow. And I was just walking down Brick Lane, and I crossed Alto Valley Park. And um, I was talking to my boyfriend at the time. And I just told him, I was like, I'll be home in a couple minutes. Cause and I because London is in a never-ending state of regeneration, Ryan and I had to move location to continue our conversation. Talking about walking home from Alta Valley Park. Yeah, so you're walking home from Alta Valley Park. Yeah, and so I've called, I've called my partner at the time, telling him that I'll be home in a couple minutes, and he was like, "Okay, cool, I'll make sure dinner's ready." And I uh, hang up the phone, um, put my phone in my pocket, and all of a sudden, someone gives me a massive bear hug from behind. And naturally, I think it's my partner like following me home, making sure I know my way. That's just how I, I, I that's how I think. I turned around, and it was this kid, and he just punched me in the face, and I just. 
I immediately said, I'm so sorry, but I think you have me mistaken for someone else. Like, I, I don't I don't deserve this. And then he just continued to hit me. And these kids just came running out from behind these rocks and just beating me up. Um, just, I didn't know what for. I didn't know what they wanted. But then there was a moment where I realized that in that moment, every single person I knew in the whole world thought that I was okay, including my partner. And so... I had a moment where I realized that I was the only person who could get myself out of that situation. So I just started like wielding a glass water bottle at them and screaming and then um, just ran away. But it was, it was harrowing. It was probably like, was it like seven minutes? Felt like a, a lifetime. But after that, um, it made me realize that London is, you need to have a thick skin here. You need to like watch yourself and also know that um, as many people that are out there to support you, there are people out there to get you as well which was a, a harsh lesson to learn at the age of 23. I was wearing red trousers and these like nude colored block glasses with like teal sides. It was a quite an extra, Elton John would have been proud. But, um, but yeah, ever since then I just kind of went incognito and like it wasn't until years later where I started to work in fashion where I started to re-embrace my style. But up until that point I went straight into like just hide in the, amongst the crowds because I just didn't want to be clocked out like that again. Did you have similar experiences growing up where you felt like you had to blend in? No, I don't think I did. As a child, I was always free to be myself. But I think as, I mean, my family specifically, like I was, I was really good at projecting like the perfect Indian son mm. um, and the perfect Indian grandkid and the perfect Indian nephew. Like I, I just knew what to wear, knew what to say, knew, knew that I was creating a version of myself that they could see. So within that, um, I think that's quite rooted into the nature of performance and um, I guess holding people's expectations like I do now when it comes to curation or event management, I know what people want and need from me. Um, But I never allowed it to really affect myself, like in terms of my aesthetic or or how I portrayed myself. I was just aware. And so you were always aware that it was, you said that very beautifully, that it was a version of yourself. Mm -hmm. Because it was ultimately yourself. Yeah, well, I effectively mentally put myself on pause. And I knew that there would come a time and point in my life where I could really explore who I am. But currently, this is who they need. And so it was an interesting psychological dynamic that I created for myself. Because I, I, in my mind, as a queer Asian, I was like, there'll come a point where you have a career, you live in a city with a partner or by yourself and you are okay on your own and that's when you're allowed to be free to do what you want. What do you think allows that kind of projection or that vision of the future? Because it's not a vision I ever had and I think that, which is not to say it's not possible, but rather to say or to illustrate that maybe a lot of queer kids don't have that foresight. Yeah. I feel like the way that I was brought up, my... Asian family uh, would just drum home the idea of success and so within the the nature of that um, success creates freedom if you have money you can do whatever you want Mm. and if you do what we say you'll make money so for me I was like I'm just going to listen to this and and understand the architecture of what they think is um, success which in that point was finances and um, they wanted me to be an accountant I wanted to be a filmmaker Um, but I knew that if I followed that um, blueprint that I could get to a place where that freedom would allow me to be who I wanted to be not necessarily be who who or what they thought I should spend money on 
And so I just, that's how I was thinking about it. God, that's incredible clarity. Yeah, I spent a lot of time in my own head. <laughs> I've been known to be, uh, be uh, dubbed an overthinker. Mm. Mm. But overthinking can be paralyzing. Absolutely. Um, so distilling that is quite important and knowing when, when you're thinking too much. What does that distillation process look like? I mean, now I think it incorporates mindfulness and I guess like understanding how to be present. Um, especially in London, it's a, you're in a rat race that you never really realize you signed up for. Um, some people come here knowing exactly what kind of trainers to wear for that race, but um, some people come here and they just don't have any idea how much of yourself you have to put um, into it. I felt like I came wearing heels Did you? to a marathon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I still feel that way. <laughs> I mean, it was, it was amazing to come here and not know anybody, and by knowing that I knew I could reinvent myself. But it was weird because there are some things that you can't change, like the color of your skin or the sound of your voice, um, and or your name even. And so I was lucky to be able to maneuver them against each other. So at some points I could be Asian, and some points I could be ethnic, and at some points I could just be an ambiguous caramel hybrid. And um, my name is Ryan, so no one ever th thought of me as a Sandeep or Pavinder. Um, right. So Ryan was effectively a very American name, and when they spoke to me, I sounded like I was from New York. So I just played to those things when I had those opportunities. So it sounds like you've always kind of been good at presenting the version of, or a version of yourself, that you've been very adaptable. Yeah, um, there's always this uh, a pillar of truth in it, but then at the end of the day, it's like I just studied film and grew up watching cinema, Bollywood cinema or Hollywood cinema. And so once you've watched 200 of the most amazing films that have ever been made, you start to realize character portrayal. And, um, and you see different protagonists and antagonists and, and like how, how stories can unfold. You know, I'm really struck by thinking about the piece that you wrote and sitting in front of you now. Because there was, in that piece, I was... Um, what really resonated emotionally or spiritually, viscerally, mm -hmm. with your piece was that you had so beautifully recalled childhood, mm -hmm. right? Which is hard to do, particularly now that I'm sitting in front of you and you're so intellectual. That kind of childlike nature of the piece you wrote, that's that kind of juxtaposition is really striking to me. Well, when I wrote that, I didn't actually know what I was going to write. I just knew I wanted to write a piece about Hangama. Um, the agency that I was starting to build for the gay Asian community, um, I felt like it was an opportunity for me to like just speak my truth. And the only way I could do it was by turning all the lights off in my room. Um, I laid on my bed with my laptop on my lap and I put on one of the only songs that really make me miss my mum on repeat and it's called Sajida by this Bollywood film called My Name Is Khan and um, it was, I just listened to it again and again and again and then just kept writing over the song wow. that's all I did it must it must resonate with you on a really deep level because that energy 
I felt it. Oh, thank you. I felt that. And even then, I don't. I'm not extremely articulate in the language of Hindi or even Urdu or Punjabi. I can understand it to a certain point. Um, that song for me just it's almost like a call to prayer to my mother and like I would really love to know exactly what the literal translation is but um, for me it's like I hear it as like it's just like my love for you will always be love for you and I'll just give nothing to you but love and um, and then I didn't know whether I should write about the past or the present or the future um, my experience is at Hangama the party itself um, it's just fun and chaos and celebration and it's only afterwards that I get messages from people saying thank you so much I never thought I'd be able to hear that song again in a gay club mm. or hear that song in a gay club or ever thought I'd hear that song again mm. um, or just being able to dance like the way we dance at Indian weddings um, like just thank you for that opportunity and for me it's it was so easy to do I guess with the nature of my my career path culturally where I placed myself and the fact that I've come to this point of like just honesty and authenticity, um, it was an it was an easy um, synapse to have that event. But for some other people, like they they still feel like we haven't got to that point yet. Mm-hmm. I mean, we have nights like Club Kali, which has been running for twenty five years. We have um, Desi Boys, which is quite um, fun in central London. But like, there's something about Hungama that that makes it about creativity and makes it about new sound and culture and um, and gives an equal playing field for hip-hop, R&B, queer culture and Hollywood. Someone said to me the other day, um, chaos stirs things up. Mm-hmm. And that <laughs> charged through my body, that statement. And I had like, I was like, aha! <laughs> of course. And so when you said chaos in relations to your night hangama, mm. And then how those people said that, you know, they might, they thought they might not hear that song again. Yeah. It made me think of that statement, that, that yeah. chaos, that truth rather, that chaos stirs things up. Yeah, because Hangama means chaos in Bedlam. Oh, does it? Yeah. And so I, I didn't know what to call the party. Chaos in Bedlam. I didn't know what to call it, but I just would keep, I just kept thinking about my mum when she would go to a wedding or a cocktail party or like a family or friends night or something like that. The next day, she, auntie's always chatting on the phone about what happened and who said what and, <laughs> and like what people were wearing. And then um, she'd always say that it was such a hangama and like it always gets to a point where it becomes hangama and which just means fun and like enjoyment, mm. which I thought, I just thought was really fitting. The genesis of hangama is obviously in the recollections of your mother and rather the stories that she told. I would say that looking back, I can see where the the DNA of of the night has come from as a child and where I am now. But the actual genesis was 2017. Um, I had just... I'd gone through a lot in terms of career. I'd gone through a lot in terms of being in London and being displaced a handful of times, so much so that I didn't even know why I was here. Mm-hmm. Um, and so 2017, my nearest resolution to myself was to just be myself at all times. Because I found myself in curation of art to be a curator. If I found myself in the curate, like as a curator in fashion to be some sort of non-entity that people knew was always around, but no one knew how I was affiliated to fashion. Um, in the Dolphin gay community, I didn't really feel like I had a watering hole. Um, I went, I went home. Did I? 
I, I, tra- I was traveling and I just realized that I missed Bollywood music so much and I was like why have I denied myself this for so long and I denied myself Bollywood cinema I just became so um, articulate about contemporary fashion designers and um, all of the, that sort of shattered glass of creatives that come in with fashion I just forgot about stuff that I was brought up on why do you think you forgot? because I think in the industries that we're in we're not allowed to allow we're not that we're not allowed we're not given the opportunity to celebrate our identity through our mediums um, I think we are just trying to please people with what we think they want to see and so especially now in the landscape of culture that we're in it's like people are really looking for people to like tap into who they are and teach them something new through a collective medium whether that be a sheesh in fashion or whether that be um, like British Asian artists who are looking at a medium of art as well as where they've been brought up whether that be South Hall or India and how they came here and acclimatized it's like um, people are actually taking a moment to, to ask and to they're wanting to know so you made the resolution in 2017 to be yourself at all times mm-hmm. Which one could argue was the result of chaos? Yeah, and that chaos stirred up in you, Hangama. Yeah. Do you think that something larger is at work for? Because it seems to me that there is a general awakening among queer people of color mm. that the time is now. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think it's really important that we identify new channels of queer culture rather than just the ones that we are slightly familiar with. <laughs> I'm having a religious experience. <laughs> You're so right. And so, so, and I have to tell you a story about that. Yeah, okay. Carry so on. I just kind of feel like when I went to the Pride Parade, yeah, there's a hundred queer Asians who are bold enough to to be a dull and and jump around and then celebrate. But I was like, there is so much more culture within that, and there is so much more contemporary culture within that, and, and nuance so, and complexity yeah. and texture and yeah. And so, if you listen to Indian music, like our well, not even Indian music, but R and B music, Bollywood has been sampled for like the last ten years in hip hop and R and B. And it's like, why haven't we jumped off from that? And like, and how come we can't? Why is there a big discussion about whether or not you can wear a bindi to a festival, but then someone? not having the opportunity to throw a big Indian Bollywood party where everyone's allowed to wear bindi and you can wear a sari if you want to you can be gender fluid if you want to mm-hmm. it's like just come as you are right. and celebrate all of it rather than questioning <laughs> one small sticker on your forehead yes that's how I feel at least it is incumbent upon those of us with platforms or at least the desire mm-hmm. um, to create new platforms yeah versus going to existing platforms that weren't designed for us in the first place mm. and trying to change from the inside out. And that was part of the big lesson I learned um, at Gay Times. Mm. And the situation, as bad as it was, answered a question for me that I'd asked myself five months earlier. And I asked myself this. I said, is someone of my passion and energies best suited to working in an all-white organization to increase representation of people of color? Yeah. Or should I be working for people of color and creating a new platform that celebrates who we are in our culture? Yeah. And everyone around me was like, no, visibility and representation is so important, so do the work. Yeah. Being a change agent isn't easy. And I disagreed inside. Mm. And I, but I took, the, I took counsel. <laughs> I took yeah. the advice. Um, and then the situation happened, and the universe was like, yeah, you had the right answer all along. Um, have you read The Good Immigrant? No. By Nikesh Shukla. It's like a, um, 
a book that's a whole bunch of short stories by different uh, POC people. And there's one that discusses um, the idea of being a, a model immigrant. Hmm. And it's looking at um, not South Asians, but the Asian. I'm, I get confused sometimes because I'm from Canada, so South Asian means Indian. Mm-hmm. I mean, like those who are from Japan and China, East and, Asian. Yeah, East Asian. Yeah. They because um, we're East Indian in Canada, so it's always slightly oh, right. mind bender. <laughs> um, how they are considered to be model immigrants, and how they come in and they work um, with, I'd say. British people and they don't uproot anything and then you have other you have other um, ethnicities that come in and are considered troublemakers or are considered um, workers and like they they've kind of found this sort of like happy medium or this happy area where they just they haven't really upset anyone and they're able to integrate yes perhaps but I think it's probably largely connected to well-worn um, tropes, yeah, absolutely. Particularly for for uh, for um, those of the African diaspora, absolutely. but I'm curious what that disruption might look like for those of the South Asian diaspora. Well, that's what I feel as well. As like South Asian diaspora have been able to find a place where we go unnoticed almost, and we're able to work to work in situations that raise visibility. But we're raising visibility for us as. Serbian people we're not raising visibility for us as people with passion and people with direction and, and people with vision and agency mm. and so that is what I felt was happening what is happening in the queer Asian community I mean we we know that there's a lot of us we know that we can congregate together and have a party with 500 of us um, quietly behind closed doors and and celebrate us being queer in that moment but how do we find enough like-minded people to build a strong community of us to tell everyone else out there that you do not have to be one or the other, you can be both. And so are you interested in that 500 people, hypothetically, kind of merging with the larger queer community? Yeah. And that kind of trans, that kind of sharing of culture and identity in that way? Absolutely, and I think this is, we've done Hungama twice, and um, it's been wildly successful, um, not in terms of like money, but just in terms of experience. Mm. And so, which one could argue is more important? Yeah, exactly. And so, like, it's it's culture. The the litmus test as to how culturally relevant it is, it, it is undeniably an important thing. Um, and what was really beautiful about it is that there is a complete balance between it being rooted in culture, being rooted in being Indian, and being rooted in creativity, and being rooted in like where it is situated in terms of East London, like. It, everything harmonizes together so beautifully and so what I want to do is to get more people involved not just specifically people of color but I usually I, I use this term a bit um, quite a bit I've been using it quite a bit recently but people of change and so instead of trying to figure out what person of color you are I look at you as a person of change and I'm a person of change so when someone calls me a POC person it's because I see the world the same way another person sees it and I want to like embrace everyone rather than put myself in another marginalization. Do you think that you can do that and still maintain a racial or cultural identity? Yeah, I think so. I'm I'm pretty sure we can. And I the reason I say this is because in August I curate I was the exhibition curator of an exhibition called um, The Beauty of Being British Asian. And one of the most poignant moments in that show, I always love to sit in my exhibitions as long as possible during the run times, especially if they're short, was we had these two wonderfully loud ladies come in from Trinidad and Tobago. Mm -hmm. 
and they were looking at this picture of um, a piece of roti with like Nutella on it and they were like look at this this is amazing and then they looked at this installation of a kitchen and they're like this is exactly what my kitchen looks like you don't need to be Asian or British you need to be from Trinidad and Tobago and I was just like living for it because mm. I didn't realize how much the ripple effect would translate oh and that we can see ourselves yeah everywhere yeah and like culture is meant to be shared and is meant to be experienced and so I feel like is that quite a cultural utopia that we're talking about though that is not actually rooted in a reality that we're living I I do agree with what you're saying I just think that like for me I just have a really positive disposition and so I guess I've had to have it my entire life mm. even from the beginning of the conversation that we've had like I wasn't I don't allow myself to see the not the reality but just like how the difficulties and the, and the negativity from it. No, I guess I bring that up to see where the two collide. Mm -hmm. Because that cultural identity is important, but obviously with it comes the heritage and the histories. Yeah. And so, but then also the utopia is so important to think about. Yeah. And this idea of the transfer and sharing of cultures yeah. is where we want to be. I wonder, though, if we can get there just thinking about the utopia without the attendant recognition and activism against where we are. I hear what you're saying. I do feel for myself that like one must strive for the utopia in order to land somewhere near it. And so, and I never ever once think that you should disregard or disremember or neglect the past or what has happened before us. I think it's important to remember that and to channel that um, activism and energy into something positive and celebratory amongst everyone. Yeah, how do you challenge that? Because I think, I'm asking for me, Yeah. because you know, there's often so many times when I feel a great sense of anger, not about my own experience, but about the larger queer community of color mm. and the um, erasure of us yeah. from LGBTQ culture at large, which I separate from queer culture because I yeah. feel queer is more inclusive by mm -hmm. virtue of it being queer. But so there, how do, how does one how does one turn that rage into the utopia that is so important to keep in mind? It's a very good question because rage is such a like a really specific word. Like once you feel rage, it's hard to once you see red, it's hard to not. Mm -hmm. um, for me, the way that I have been constructed, I guess, is by being Canadian. And so in Canada, we, I guess the difference between Americans and Canadians is that you are never, you're never told that you are not unique, but you're told that we're all Canadian, we're all humans, and we're all from Canada. And then what we begin to do is creating a cultural calendar of every single person we know and celebrating all of their celebrations. Interesting. And so, in, in not even in, oh, in university, but it starts from day one in elementary school. You will have hot lunches from around the world. You will have, um, you'll be celebrating Chinese New Year. Everyone will be putting little chocolate, um, like loonies, they call them, which are $1 coins, in little sachets and giving them to people as like um, good omens. You have Diwali, where everyone's eating Indian food and dancing to Indian music. You have every single holiday you can think of like we celebrate carnival and like culturally and ethnically everything is celebrated it just becomes a part of all of our lives so I get it because you're 
your point of view has been shaped by the fact that you have been taught to appreciate mm. cultures outside of your own while still being raised in a strong yeah. uh, culture um, from your family. Yeah. And so the gap there is that so many of us are not taught really to appreciate cultures outside of our own in a really substantive and respectful way. Yeah, absolutely. Which kind of brings to your point earlier about the bindi. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. Yeah, okay. and also being a child okay. as well in Canada, when you celebrate all of these cultures in school and... My parents always took an interest in school, but they weren't really aware of the extracurricular things that were happening. So when you go there, then they'd be telling you about how important our culture is, how important it is to marry an Indian girl, how important it is to celebrate Diwali and um, all of these, like Raksha Bandhan and all these specific holidays within that community, where they're listing, and we agree, because we know how great all the other holidays are from Mm -hmm. other cultures too. So it's just, it's interesting to see moments where you're being confined and moments where you're being expanded and like having that sort of push and pull effect. Um, yeah, I've just really, I've just never felt displaced by different cultures. I've always felt embraced by them, but I guess, I, and I'm realizing now that it's because I grew up in Canada. Wow. And especially being a, a Canadian British curator, curating a show about being British and Asian, um, recently, I was able to create a neutral space to connect Gujaratis, Muslims, Hindus, Punjabis, um, who notoriously are uh, constantly against each other. And that's a feat. Yeah, and, but I created a ubiquitous space, wow. a space where if they walked in, it was the smell and it was the sound and it was the feeling that all connected to, to a place that we could all identify as home. What do you see as a blockage towards this utopia, towards this cultural appreciation mm-hmm. that we're working towards? What's blocking us from getting there as a queer community? I think... If I'm being honest, I think two of the things... One would definitely be anger and rage. Like, that needs to be... Touché. Released. <laughs> it needs to be released. It just has to go. Mm-hmm. And, like, and I think the best way to get through that is by having a support system around you of people who are like, it's not that bad, it's okay, and we're all in this together. And the second thing would be the sort of hierarchy of, um, I guess, exclusivity that exists in communities. Like, for example, I absolutely love... Vogue acid balls, and I think that they're absolutely amazing. I watched Paris is Burning when I was like 12 years old, and now it's been commodified in so many different ways. But I don't feel like if I went there that I would be allowed to go there or be accepted there. Like, I don't know if the ballroom scene is for me, because if you look at it historically, it was for low economic black queer men mm-hmm. who were trying to be a part of a Upper West Side lifestyle in New York back in the day. And but then again, I have to stop myself from thinking that because that's, that's me placing myself outside of the room. Well, I just need to place myself inside of the room mm. and just be a part of it. It can be hard to do that, though. I get Completely. That. It can. But that's when the support sense comes in, where mm. you have other people who are like, you belong here as much as I belong here. We all belong here together. And so changing that perspective is so paramount. That's why Busy Being Black features and will feature those who might not necessarily identify as black but of color yeah because i think that black is black absorbs yeah it's true my dad in canada always used to call himself black really yeah he he's like i'm the black guy who works who works down the road and i'm just like are you <laughs> but i just for me it's just like i just don't see color in that respect and like i just i personally just feel like it's it's just a hue of our skin it's not necessarily well, i mean it sounds really naive to say that, but like, I, I just have a really optimistic approach. Yes. Mm, and like, if I can bottle that and like help people see it, then I'm, I, I want to do that as much as possible. 
And I feel like there's a reason to do it for the queer Asian community. I really want us to celebrate who we are and be a part of the, the community and, um, and not do it in a self-serving way. I, I, I really think it's important for us to do it as a group and not do it as one person is a spokesperson for something. Mm, can we work together and do like a joint night yeah that sees the collision of our respective communities yeah absolutely in a, in a celebration Vogama yeah yeah which is funny you say that there's, there's, the cogs are turning and the ideas are happening so yeah it'd be quite fun what would you tell your younger self what would I tell my younger self that there is no false economy of love no matter who you love and how much you love them you will always love them that much and you'll always be able to regenerate that love and it's just important to know that because if you feel like you've lost that love, it's actually not true. You, st- you still get to keep it and you'll get to feel more of it. What do you hope for? In I don't know. It's a very, it just popped into my head. What do I hope for? Yeah, what do you hope for? I, I just hope that we can find a place in this world where we stop getting inside our heads so much and just start appreciating things together. And I think I, I'm starting to do that with exhibitions, like allowing people to connect either physical pieces of paper or physical space and something that's experiential. Um, it scares me to think that there are so many people who feel loneliness and that is perpetuated by what they're looking at on their screens and, um, and how much it's actually barricading themselves in their own minds. And um, I think yoga is amazing and the universe and cosmos and astrology and all these things are my spiritual compasses. But I don't think I want to be showing that to them. I just want to be in a room where they feel like they're actually beside a human being and they feel like they're actually learning something. So bringing that back, I hope for that. I'm so glad I asked that question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like Letters to Last Lovers is a prime example. Um, I didn't even realize that I'd end up being in the show and I just came into my subconscious and next thing you know there's a letter from my ex-boyfriend and there's a letter from me in it as well and it just happened to unfold the way it did but it is it was so somber to see these people who felt pain and loss but then also people who found like acceptance through it and um there's such a huge scale there's someone writing a letter to their grandfather there's someone writing a letter to their best friend um there's someone writing a letter to that colleague at, in the office who they well hope they have a great wedding like, you know what's powerful about that exhibition and about just the very idea of it, not, le- not least kind of walking in there, mm. is I knew immediately who I'd write a letter to, mm. Yeah, which I think speaks volumes. Yeah, I think the hardest thing for me was when I would try to write a letter to an ex-lover and I couldn't, and, but when I tried to write a letter to my partner who unfortunately is no longer my partner, it was easier. How come? I think it was just what we'd been through, but my, my letter was a letter of, of self-reflection. And so it was about how I can how I can better look at the situation using the vehicle of the exhibition. So I thought it was just a nice way to cathartically be a part of my own show. Mm. And then I didn't, well, I mean, life unfolds the way it does and you're not control of anything, so. That's quite a freeing idea in and of itself. Mm. Shit happens. And life imitates art, everyone <laughs> says that. And I was just like, how on earth did I just do this? <laughs> so weird. Uh, well, I think it perhaps speaks to your authenticity, which mm. seems to pour out of you. Thank you. It's really, um, it's really nice. Thank you so much. It's really nice, particularly you know to go back to your, um, to go back to London, mm. to come back into this city that often 
feels vicious mm. to see someone who has such a warm and authenticity is really nice. Mm-hmm. Thank you for reminding me of that because, again, I can get stuck in my own head. Mm. Ryan Lange is a fashion and art curator based in East London. Through his work, he champions underground artists and independent designers, helping curate multi-sensorial spaces, resulting in highly sought-after and unforgettable events. You can find out more about Ryan at ryanlange.com. Busy Being Black is the podcast exploring how we live in the fullness of our queer black lives. Thank you to our partners, UK Black Pride and Blackout UK, and to you, the listeners. I would love to hear from you. If you have feedback about Busy Being Black or know of someone I should be in conversation with, please get in touch on busybeingblackpod at gmail.com. And remember, your support doesn't cost any money. Please rate, review, and share this podcast and follow at underscore busybeingblack on Twitter and Instagram, where you can join the conversation using the hashtag busybeingblack. Finally, thank you to Anthony Giles, a queer black Grammy-nominated producer based in New York City, for these bomb-ass Busy Being Black beats. I share. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.